You're listening to Check Us Out, the podcast from the Montclair Public Library. I'm Peter Coyle, Director of the Library, and we're glad you're listening this month. We're offering limited in-person service on the first floor of the main library. For hours and restrictions, please visit our website, montclairlibrary.org, for more information. In today's episode, Molly is going to discuss upcoming business and author programs that we're offering in January and February. Maurice is going to talk about the winter classes the adult school is offering, which begin on Tuesday, January 19th. He's going to talk about five classes that you'll be very excited to take. Ken is going to talk about this month's new adult releases that he's very excited about. And Kirsten's going to talk about young adult materials that are available as either ebooks or e audio. Adrian's going to dive deep into a best selling book called Cast The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. And then Selwa is going to interview Jessica Henry, author of Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened, by a local Montclair author and professor at Montclair State. Hello and Happy New Year. This is Maurice from the Adult School. And Molly from the Adult Services Department. And we welcome everyone to 2021 with hopes for a better and safer year. And on that note, starting out, we're going to talk about programs here at the library, Montclair Library, open up the year. You know, we have a, we've had a, obviously a very complicated 2020, so we're looking forward to uh, bigger and better things in 2021. I guess the more important thing is to be a safer 2021 and hopefully enjoyable one as well. So we're going to do our part to sort of make that possible for the uh, wonderful residents here in Montclair and the surrounding area. Yes, so we'll be, we'll be virtual for the foreseeable future with our programs. And I'm curious to hear what you have for the adult school. Classes start Tuesday, January 19th. And registration is currently open online at adultschool.org for any class that you're interested in. We have also our online catalog is available on our website at adultschool.org. Again. And kicking off 2021, we want to start, of course, with business. 20, uh, the new year is always a time for renewal. So we're starting out with some classes to get people prepared for the new year. But on that note, we're going to do uh, starting out with new year, new you, moving forward in 2021. That'll be on Wednesday, January 20th, starting at 6.30. Diane Lang will lead that class. She's our wonderful personal growth instructor. She's been with us for many years and she's very popular. She gets great reviews from our, from our students after her classes. It'll be interesting to see what tips she has for how to move forward in, 20, in 2021 after what we went through uh, last year. Turning towards the political front, uh, we're looking at inauguration this year, the inauguration of a new president this year. So in that spirit, we're offering a new NATO for the Biden era with a question mark. That'll be from our global affairs instructor, Pierre Fabian, who was a former officer of the United Nations. That class will be on Thursday, January 21st at 6.30. Uh, that should be very interesting. But, you know, but the new year, we're also looking to keep things light and also a little bit of fun as well. Just as a little well as, fun? A little fun, a little fun. Can't handle too much fun, right? Too much fun, <laughs> drama's, fun. Drama's crazy. So yeah, but man, we'll have as much fun as we can. But with a little bit of wonder too, a little bit of wonder. So on that note, we're bringing back Montclair resident and astrophysicist, Charles Liu. who will be back for physics answers for all. No question too big or too small. A family friendly talk on Tuesday, January 26th at 6.30. Both at the top of just to be here to answer all the questions you have about how physics, you know, steers the world around us. Everything from understanding the atoms to the question like, why is that birds can actually like sit on electrical wires and not get electrocuted? That's an important question, right? Thing, I want to know. <laughs> Everyone wants to know. So I want to go. <laughs> so we'll you, find out. You we'll said it's family together. friendly. So like, um, so, so older children and mm-hmm. teens and adults all welcome to that? Teens, adults, welcome. Yeah, uh, Charles Liu is a father of very smart kids. You know, he's had kids in the Montclair School District, so he's um, very popular. He and his uh, wife, they're uh, known as a really um, helpful, influential couple here in the Montclair community. So this is definitely, he's always has an eye towards kids. He values kids in his lectures. So I would always, you know, recommend people to bring, you know, teens, young children, you know, for, every, for the whole family. Which That's is a great. Lot of fun. It's free for everyone, which makes it even better. Yeah, Charles is great. We always look forward to having Charles back. He's just a very smart man, also a very kind man. New Year is also a time for writers. People to get, you know, to start writing. Need a little help to do that. So in that spirit, we're offering fledgling writers. 
the Breaking Writer's Block class with Marion Calabro, our career writing instructor. That'll be Thursday, January 21st at 1 p.m. I'm going to offer a multi-week course on using color and composition in your art from Marcia Koopman, our design instructor. That one starts Wednesday, January 20th at 10.30 a.m. We also have three visionary women, three great art museums, looking at three wonderful women who created two very influential art museums, including Peggy Guggenheim. That'll be led by our art lecturer, Janet Mandel, on Thursday, January 28th at 2 p.m. And looking forward to February, we're um, programming for Black History Month, and uh, we're very excited to uh, welcome back Steve Golden, retired history professor at Bloomfield College. We'll be leading Freedom, the Long Struggle for Racial Equality on Tuesday, February 2nd at 6.30. We're also going to be taking a three-week survey into the literature and legacy of Zora Neale Hurston, the influential novelist and folklorist. That one will start Tuesday, February 9th. It runs from February 9th through the 23rd, 6.30 to 8 p.m. That's, again, three sessions. Ada McKenzie Thomas, we're so happy to welcome her back. So she taught at Bloomfield College, um, influential instructor. She taught two classes. One was on African-American female literature, literature about African-American females. And she also did a very good class with August Wilson, the playwright August Wilson. We're happy to welcome her back to survey the work of Zorna Hurston, the literature legacy, the literature of Zorna Hurston. And we have several other come from Black History Month, which we'll be discussing in uh, next month's podcast. Right, right. Sounds good. Well, we have not quite as many events coming out of the adult services department in the library, but a couple that I'll share. <laughs> um, so on January 19th at three o'clock, we are having a program in partnership with the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship about starting a business in New Jersey. It's definitely an interesting time to be thinking about starting a business, but there's a lot of people out there that you know still have that dream and that goal, and we want to um, help share helpful information about the general process for beginning a business in this great state of New Jersey. Just to be very clear, um, you know, it's called the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship, but everybody is welcome. It's not just for women. So that's on January 19th at three. And we're also having an identical session of that on the 27th of January in Spanish. Just want to make sure we get that information out to as many people as possible. So we're having an English and Spanish. So that'll be really good. Um, we also, on January 19th, in partnership with Montclair Bounce Festival, Olympian and author Alexi Papas is going to talk about her newest book, Bravey. And then coming up on February 11th, we have another author event with Charles Blow. He's gonna be discussing his book, The Devil You Know. And that's at seven o'clock on the 11th. That's part of our open book, open mind series. And then another date I want you guys to save in your calendars is February 22nd at 7th, another Open Book, Open Mind program. That's with Isabel Wilkerson discussing her book, Cast. And we've got even more coming up in later February and March and beyond that I'm very excited about, but I'll wait till we're closer to those dates um, with our podcast talk. But very, very excited about what's on the horizon, our virtual programming. So... That is very exciting. I mean, Charles Blow and Isabel Wilkerson, that's a, you know, uh, I was going to say a murderer's row of, uh, of uh, speakers, but I mean, that's not the right way of, of uh, describing it, but that's, uh, yeah, that's very exciting. I mean, having yeah. this, uh, I mean, we're really, really excited to host both of them. That's what I have for programs. So I'm going to pivot over to an online resource, which I usually share with everybody. I'm going to be doing some repeats because we've been doing this for over a year. So I'm going to be refreshing your memory on certain online resources that we have, but it's always good to have a refresher. The one I want to highlight today is called Creative Bug. And this is, a, I guess it's not that new anymore. It's just that this whole year has kind of flown by at the same time as also going very slowly. <laughs> we got this about a year ago in uh, March or April when we shut down. Our foundation generously underwrote Creative Bug. And it's a very comprehensive database of arts and craft classes taught by leading experts in various crafts such as painting, drawing, sewing, knitting, all kinds of artsy, craftsy, wonderful things. It's free with your Montclair Library card. You just go to our website. There's links to it kind of all over our website. So I would just say go to our website, click on the search icon, and then type in Creative Bug, and then just choose one of the 
the links that pops up. Very helpful, very useful. And I think this is a nice time to remind everybody of that resource because I don't know about you, but every January, I just think about all the new things I want to try and the old hobbies I want to revive. And while we're somewhat stuck at home, I think working on things like that is always a, a good option for things to do. So Creative Bug, very helpful, very useful, free with your library card. Check it out. Yeah, the range of lessons offered on that platform is really, truly is amazing. I mean, things you can learn through that platform. It's just like yeah. every sort of creative craft you could ever want is almost is on there. And it's from like amazing. beginner to oh, yeah. to more difficult types of projects. I, I totally just scratched the surface by saying painting, drawing, etc. But it's a wealth of information and they're always adding new ones too. So it just keeps expanding. Very good resource. Not to disrespect YouTube, but I do feel like it's sort of a value add versus what you get off of something like YouTube or, you know, something on one of these other platforms totally agree. Just because there's no ads, like mm -hmm. it's all just the content. Usually the videos are longer and it's just, it's all like very curated and vetted and high quality. Yeah, it's very high quality. Every craft you can think of and they get a very detailed videos. It's so very detailed in terms of uh, what kind of shows you need how to approach it, everything from the sewing to painting. You know, it's really a, really a very valuable resource, you know, that's available to the Montclair card holders. Yeah, sure. yeah, definitely. I'm very grateful to the foundation for sponsoring that one. Yeah, that, that's very good record that part. I was going to say that too. That's very thing for, for the <laughs> foundation. We love our foundation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got today. Just everyone be safe, you know, and um, we're taking these programs. You know, we're not in the woods yet in regards to our public health. Mm -hmm. situation at these programs out here for you to engage with you know safely so i hope people take advantage of that and um we look forward to uh talking to you in uh february all right thanks for listening thank you take care everyone hi this is ken and the holiday season is over so it's time to get into some new books for 2021 january looks like a great month as some of my favorite authors are represented First off is a book I've been wanting to read ever since it was announced last summer, The Unquiet Englishman, A Life of Graham Greene by Richard Greene. Richard Greene, no relation to Graham, published a collection of Greene's letters some years back which served as a kind of life story, but now he's tackling the subject with a full biography. Graham Greene lived a very colorful life, a journalist, a spy, a restless traveler, a human rights advocate, and above all, a brilliant novelist. His greatest books include Brighton Rock, The End of the Affair, The Power and the Glory, and The Quiet American. I can't wait to tear into this one and learn more about his life. Another favorite writer who started in journalism is Joan Didion. Didion hasn't published any new work since her book Blue Nights in 2011. Her new title, Let Me Tell You What I Mean, is a collection of her magazine articles which have never been published in book form before, ranging from the 1960s to the early part of this century. I'm particularly interested in a piece titled Why I Write, both because her style is so unique and also because that's the title of a classic George Orwell essay to which she must be alluding. But no one writes like Joan Didion, and I welcome every bit of her prose that comes along. A recent favorite writer is George Saunders, whose book Lincoln in the Bardo might be the best thing I've read in the last several years. His new one is called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain and is nonfiction. In it, he also talks about the process of writing, especially the influences on his work. Saunders teaches a class in Russian literature at Syracuse and lays out the book as if it were a master class on Tolstoy and Chekhov, among others. It's not strictly a lecture, though. He also shares what he has learned from his students and how the appreciation of literature changes as we all change as people. The book sounds fascinating. Back in 1973, the great American poet Allen Ginsberg published a volume called The Fall of America, Poems of These States. The poems were a reflection of the travels he took around the country in the late 1960s, and were very much imbued with the anti-Vietnam War protests which he witnessed and participated in. While he was traveling in those years, he took along a tape recorder that had been given to him by Bob Dylan to record his thoughts. Nearly half a century later, those tapes have been transcribed and are being published as the Fall of America journals. 
reading about history as it was being made by one of the finest writers of the 20th century is too good to pass up. Last is a book of short stories. I was first introduced to the work of Irish writer Kevin Barry through his excellent short story collection, Dark Lies the Island. Since then, he has published several novels, including last year's Night Boat to Tangier. Now he has a new story collection titled That Old Country Music, or probably That Old Country Music, because it's talking about the old country. Like his earlier collection, but unlike his novels, the new book is set in contemporary Ireland, of which he is possibly the best chronicler. Barry is a brilliant, often funny writer who creates very believable characters, and I'm looking forward to stepping into his world again. That's all for this month. I hope you look into some of these soon-to-be classics. Hello and welcome back. This is Teen Services Librarian Kirsten with a few new releases to start the new year. These novels are all available as either ebooks or eba audiobooks with your library card. First up, we have The Cousins by Karen McManus. This is a new mystery from the author of One of Us is Lying and One of Us is Next. Like her earlier novels, The Cousins follows the story of a small group who are drawn together by unforeseen circumstances and must work together to unravel a mystery. Millie, Aubrey, and Jonah are cousins, but they have spent little time together. Their parents are estranged from their grandmother and have not remained close with each other in adulthood. One summer, an invitation arrives for each of the teenagers from their grandmother, asking them to come work at her island resort. Their parents insist that they go in the hopes of restoring their inheritance. Once they arrive, it becomes clear that the summer's plans are not exactly as advised, advertised in the letter, and the cousins must untangle the family mysteries and secrets. Next up, we have A Sky Beyond the Storm by Saba Tahir. This is the fourth installment in Tahir's excellent Ember in the Ashes series. If you're not familiar with these novels, I highly recommend checking them out. They're set in a fantasy world based on the social structure of ancient Rome, and they focus on the alternating perspectives of three main characters. Two of them, Elias and Helene, are members of the elite class and start the series as students at an elite military academy, while the third, Leia, is a member of the outcast scholar community. Without spoiling too much of the current installment, much has shifted in the world of the novels over the course of the series. Elias is currently banished to a supernatural realm and must work to protect the mortal realm from dark forces, while Elaine and Leia have allied themselves against the new empress who happens to be Elias's mother. The series trends slightly closer to new adult than young adult, but I would recommend it to older teens and anyone in search of a great fantasy series. Next up we have It Only Happens in the Movies by Holly Bourne. This follows the story of Audrey, a British teenager. Her parents are in the middle of a divorce and she is going through a breakup of her own and needs an escape. She takes a job at an upscale movie theater as a distraction and finds herself at first resisting and then falling for the charms of her flirtatious co-worker Harry. This self-aware novel follows the beats of any good romantic comedy with some drama and plenty of film references thrown in for good measure. A romantic escape with plenty of self-reflection. Finally, we have Admission by Julie Buxbaum. This novel draws heavily from recent events, namely the college admission scandal. Chloe is leading a charmed life, ready to start college at her dream school in the fall, at least until the day the FBI shows up at her house and her mother is arrested. Despite the rip from the headlines vibe, the novel portrays Chloe with humanity and compassion, while also acknowledging the place of privilege she and her family come from and not excusing their behavior. Sure to appeal to both those familiar with the case, as well as those who want a juicy page turner with a healthy dose of social, critical social commentary. Thanks for joining me again today. We'll be back next month with more recommendations. Hi, it's Adrienne again from Montclair Public Library. Today I'm going to be discussing Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. So throughout human history, three caste systems have stood out. The tragically accelerated, chilling, and officially vanquished caste system of Nazi Germany, the lingering millennia-long caste system of India, and the shape-shifting unspoken race-based caste pyramid in the United States. Each version relied on stigmatizing those deemed inferior to justify the dehumanization necessary to keep the lowest ranked people at the bottom and to rationalize these protocols of enforcement. A caste system endures because it is often justified as divine will. Originating from sacred texts or presumed laws of nature, it's reinforced throughout the culture and passed down through generations. As we go about our daily lives, caste is the wordless usher in a darkened theater. Flashlight cast down in the aisles, guiding us to our assigned seats for a performance. Picture that. That's exactly how I envision caste. It's the high cost of feeling superior. 
In Miss Wilkerson's book, she gives several demonstrations, and two of them stick out for me. One was Forrest Whitaker, the actor, an Oscar winner for his performance in The Last King of Scotland. He was accused of shoplifting. All he did was walk into a New York deli, looked around, saw it was crowded, all he wanted was some yogurt, didn't see anything that fancied him, so he turned around to exit the deli. Guess what happens? The store employee decides to stop and frisk him in front of all the other customers. Please note that all the other customers were white. She also describes a scene where, and I had heard of this, but never did it resonate with me until I finished reading this book. Martin Luther King Jr., he and his wife Coretta visit India, only to be introduced as a fellow untouchable. Now, an untouchable in India is the equivalent of the Negro in America, the lowest ranked people in America. So imagine how this must have felt to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when the principal of a high school in Kavala introduced him to the teens at that high school as a fellow untouchable. This book is going to make you angry because sometimes the truth hurts. This book is going to make you think. This book is going to have you probably doing some research, fact searching, fact checking. But we can't change what we don't acknowledge. There's no reason for us to continuously deny the caste system and racism. Ms. Wilkerson also discusses how Nazi Germany took cues from the American caste system. This was not only shocking, but it was like a gut punch. This is not to say that Germans needed help with learning hate. That is not what this is. But there had been a connection far beyond and far deeper than I would ever have imagined that German eugenicists actually were in consultation with and in dialogue with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the Third Reich, that Americans were writing books that were big sellers in Germany and popular among the Nazis in particular. So of course the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate, and yet they sent researchers to the United States to study the Jim Crow laws, and they went back and they looked at those laws as they were forming what would ultimately become the Nuremberg Laws. It was absolutely chilling and shocking to learn of this. Since its inception, the American caste system has reinvented itself in terrifying and hideous ways. Before there was a United States of America, there was enslavement. You know, there was a living death passed down for 12 generations. And this is a dark history of the scope of human violence. Enslaved Africans were seen as incapable of injury, worked to the bone and starved, routinely subjected to torture and rape. And the American caste system, just like India or Germany's, was constructed and practiced openly. There was no hiding this savagery. Even Hitler recorded his admiration for this knack for maintaining an air of robust innocence in the wake of mass death. And Wilkerson reminds us that the Nazis, though inspired by American race laws, ultimately thought that they went too far. They dismantled the caste system. And I'm going to go back and say this again. While America's caste system has been reinvented even more hideous than ever before. This is an American reckoning, as so it should be. It's bringing all the horror and possibility to light. The bygones and the present. Cass joins 1619 Project in exposing the edifice of white platinum privilege and exploding how we understand American power and supremacy. It is a painfully resonant book and could not have come at a more urgent time. Again, this is Adrian Harden of Montclair Public Library. Do yourself a favor. Go pick up a copy. Isabel Wilkerson's cast. Thank you. Hi, this is Selwa Shami, Assistant Director of the Montclair Public Library. Today, I'm interviewing Jessica Henry, author of Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. Jessica is an author, legal commentator, blogger, and social justice advocate. 
After obtaining her JD from NYU School of Law, Henry served as a public defender in New York City for nearly a decade. She has written numerous articles for both academic and mainstream publications. Her research interests include wrongful convictions, severe sentences, including the death penalty and life without parole, and hate crimes. She frequently appears as a commentator on national and local television and radio, and has been widely cited in the mainstream media. In 2015, Henry received the Montclair State University Distinguished Teacher Award for her excellence in teaching. Henry teaches a wide range of classes, including wrongful convictions, criminal law and procedure, death penalty perspectives, and hate crimes. You can find more about her at her website at jessicahenryjustice.com. Hi, Jessica, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about talking about your book, Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. And before we dive into really the important content of this book, I just wanted to ask you a few questions related to Montclair. You, you both live and work in Montclair. So, so when did you first move to Montclair? And thanks for having me on. Um, we first moved to Montclair in 2001. We had purchased our home just before 9-11 um, and we moved out. Our, our first day in Montclair was Halloween 2001. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and when you moved here, you um, did you also work in Montclair or did that come later? So at the time I was working in Manhattan as a public defender, I was commuting into the city um, and I started working at Montclair State in 2005. And I've been on the faculty in the Justice Studies Department since then. So you're a public defender in New York, and that now you're um, a full professor at MSU. That's correct, yes. Do you ever miss being a public defender? I do. I loved working for my clients, and I loved the, the opportunity to be the person that stood between the weight of this criminal justice system that was so stacked against the poor and people of color and people who are marginalized. I love being their voice in a system that is really hard to navigate. Um, so I do miss that, but I also am so fortunate because I have a job that I love and I get to talk about subjects that I feel so passionate about um, to students who are really interested. So I, I continue to be able to uh, you know, share my passion for criminal justice. And living in Montclair, do you have any, any favorite spots? Oh gosh, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know what, where you want me to start, but for shopping, there's always Barbara Eclectic, which I love for local um, clothing. There's the corner store um, owned by Wendy Lacey, another Montclair wonderful fixture. Um, that's on Bellevue Avenue. They, they support people with all kinds of abilities. I love Wachang booksellers. I love to eat at tons of restaurants, slaw, um, a Thai food restaurant is always a favorite. Daikichi, we've been going there forever. You know, the list is kind of endless. Montclair is a wonderful place to eat and live and learn. Of course, the library, the public <laughs> library. I love the library. I do. I love the library. That's great. Speaking of the library, um, so what role have libraries played in your life? Tremendous. So I grew up, you know, in a working class family in a town in Bergen County called Dumont. And both my parents, you know, I'm a first generation college student and we use the library endlessly. I mean, I read every young adult book in that library. I think actually every, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was a fixture. I would take 10, 12, 15 books out at a time. Um, so the library helped me, you know, develop a love of learning and continue a love of learning and nurture it. Um, and in Montclair, you know, I continue to use the library. I'm a supporter of the library. Everyone listening should be a supporter of the library. Um, it's a great institution. Thanks for the plug, Jessica. <laughs> we could definitely use it. If somebody were coming to Montclair for the first time, what would you tell them to, to do or to visit? Well, the Montclair Art Museum is always a great stop. If you'd like to hike, Mills Reservation is somewhere I go. Um, I recently went to the Hawk Watch in Montclair, which I'd never been to, which was I amazing. I didn't even know there was one. Amazing. It's a great place to go visit. And obviously all of the parks, I'm a big walker and I, you know, Brookdale Park, Anderson Park, Edgemont Park, they're all wonderful places to go. And again, a lot of the venues like the Watch on Booksellers, um, I think is definitely worth a stop. Great. 
So we're going to get into the book now. So my first question is, what prompted you to write this book? And I'm curious how long it took, like what was the process like for you? So I teach a course at Montclair State on wrongful convictions. And one day I was doing some research into the subject on a website that everyone can go and look at. It's called the National Registry of Exonerations. And it collects data since 1989 about people who have been exonerated. So I was playing around on their website and I found um, some data that I just couldn't believe. It said that one third of all exonerations involve people convicted of crimes that never happened. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. I mean, I've been studying this subject for a very long time and I had no idea it was one third. So I actually wrote to them and I said, is that correct? Is your data right? And they said, yeah. And I realized I had to learn more. And so I took a really deep dive into this subject and I wrote a big law review article about it and then ultimately was approached about writing this book. You know, one of the challenges I had in writing the book was trying to make it really accessible for people who are not in the criminal justice field or maybe aren't lawyers. I really wanted people to understand that this is something that happens all the time. And to say that one third of all known exonerations involve no crime cases is correct, but it's only really the tip of the iceberg. That's only the data we know about. I actually think the problem is much, much larger, particularly in misdemeanor cases which people can be like, oh, it's just a misdemeanor. It's not just a misdemeanor. Misdemeanor cases have tremendous consequences and are typically born on the backs of poor people and people of color, and they matter. And so I think the scope of no crime wrongful convictions is just huge. I don't think people know about it. And so uh, writing this book was a real opportunity for me to share information that I didn't even have before I started writing. And that I think many people will find both horrifying and fascinating. Yeah, I can attest to that. I don't have a law background and the book was accessible, you know, but it also, it it was hefty enough that I really thought, well, this could be used to, you know, in a college level course. I'm assuming that you've used it in one of your classes or you're going to? I haven't actually. Oh, Um, because it just came out and I haven't taught the class, you know, yet. So maybe I will. I encourage you to. It was, it was, you were, you're right. It was fascinating. Cause I'll be honest. I thought I'll just skim this book, but the more that I read it, I thought, wow, this is so important, you know? And I, I just really wanted to understand what you were writing about. So what did you find that the top contributing factors and no crime convictions are? So the way that no crime wrongful convictions start, right? Their triggers and how they come to be is is fascinating. Um, And the most significant contributors are false accusations, police or prosecutor misconduct, and bad forensic science, bad forensic evidence. And sometimes one of those things is enough, but we often see in cases it's one, two, or three of those factors that lead to an innocent person being convicted of a crime that literally never happened. And if I can just take a step back, people may be thinking like, what? So wrongful convictions, lots of people have heard about them today. Lots of people are familiar with the Innocence Project. Maybe some of your listeners are are podcast listeners. So they've listened to Serial. Maybe they know about um, the Adnan Saeed case. or, Or it's become a very popular mainstream idea that innocent people can be convicted of crimes committed by other people. So the wrong person is convicted of a crime committed by someone else. But what people don't understand is that there are a whole bunch of people who've been convicted of things like arson when there was really an accidental fire or they're convicted of murder when someone really died of a medical illness that was overlooked. And so there's a whole host of types of crimes or someone makes a false accusation against someone you know, like someone accuses someone of committing um, an assault and that assault never happened, but a person is wrongly convicted or the police might plant evidence, literally manufacture crimes that didn't occur. That can trigger a no crime wrongful conviction. So that's what the book is really about. It's not just about wrongful convictions in general. It's about this subset um, of cases where people are sent to prison for crimes that simply never occurred. I mean, it's just astonishing how often um, you wrote that that this occurs, you know, it, it really is. In your first chapter, it covers forensic error. 
And you wrote that medical personnel are not criminal investigators and they lack the training and expertise in crime identification. But I mean, as a lay person, I always thought, and maybe this is from watching television, but aren't there medical examiners that specialize in criminology? Sure. So a medical examiner is a doctor who also has a specialty or subspecialty in some sort of forensic analysis. But a lot of times we, we're talking about lay people, or not lay people, but doctors or um, you know people who don't have an expertise. And so there, I'll give you an example. There was a case um, involving a woman named Sabrina Butler, and she had a young child who what she found who was unresponsive and she tried to do CPR and she rushed him to the ER and she was a black teenage mom down in Mississippi. And she walked in with her lifeless child to the ER and they just immediately assumed that she had harmed her child. And the doctors misdiagnosed this child as having been abused. They called the police reporting that a crime had occurred and that kind of took off. And Sabrina Butler wound up being placed on Mississippi's death row, where she lived for five years, the only woman on death row because of a medical misdiagnosis of a crime that had never occurred. And once that label is given by a doctor to the police, it often catches fire and nobody stops and says, wait a minute, is that really what happened to this child or this person? It just kind of becomes a game of how do we prove this case? And in Sabrina Butler's case, the bruises that did appear on the child's abdomen were because she was trying to do CPR and she just didn't do it properly. And so that's an example of how a medical misdiagnosis, someone who does not have training in solving crime, uh, can lead to a wrongful conviction. And we also see sort of problems with, let's take arson, I mentioned that previously. So sometimes you have a fire scientist who comes in who's also working with the police. So instead of being an objective scientist who's looking at the facts and evidence as they appear before him or her with an objective and neutral perspective, they're in there trying to find a crime to solve. And they bring that bias to the table and then that becomes the case. And so they see a fire and they decide, oh, that was arson. And if there was a crime, then someone must have committed the crime. And the whole criminal justice system then kicks in to do what it does best, which is find a person and get a conviction. In your chapter on false accusations, um, you state that lie detector tests can be unreliable. Could you explain that? Sure. So, you know, we love to think about lie detector tests, right? We think we can really tell when someone's lying. What the science actually shows is that lie detection is very difficult. Even trained police officers who say like, I know when the suspect's lying, they get it right about 50% of the time. It's like a coin toss. Lie detector tests are so unreliable, they're not even admissible in court. Um, And that's because too many false positives come back or too many false negatives come back. People, there are, if you folks listening, um, if you ever need to take a lie detector test and you wanna beat it, you can just go on Google and search how to beat a lie detector test. There's that many techniques to do so. So we don't really have great instruments to tell when people are are speaking the truth and when they are speaking falsely. And yet we have an overconfident criminal justice system that really believes it can discern truth telling and lie telling. And so we have this kind of dichotomy and, and terrible things can happen. So on the one side, let's, you know, I spent some time talking in my book about sexual assault, which is a very painful and difficult topic. We know so many people who have been sexually assaulted, women who've been sexually assaulted don't even come forward because they just don't believe that anyone will listen to them. And that is correct, right? I mean, I talk in the book about women who came forward to report a rape who were disbelieved by the police and actually prosecuted for filing a false report. There was a young woman, Fancy Figueroa, who reported a rape. Um, The police did not believe her. They believed she had manufactured this story because she was pregnant and didn't want anyone to blame her for being pregnant. Um, So she came up with this story, they, they thought. They charged her with filing a false report. She was convicted of that. And then years later, the rapist was found and it matched the DNA from other cases that he had committed, matched the uh, the DNA that was present in her her case. And so we can see the police did a terrible job there of detecting whether she was telling the truth or not. And in her case, she was. And yet there's this other really hard truth, which is that sometimes people do make false accusations with terrible consequences and people are wrongly convicted of rape 
and other kinds of assault and spends decades in prison for crimes that literally never happened. And so there's a, a significant consequence that comes with our inability to discern truth telling. You know, you, you mentioned that the results of a lie detector test is not admissible in court. Has it always been that way or was there some sort of reform that occurred? Gosh, I don't know that it's always been that way. I actually don't know the answer to that. I probably should know that, but it, they, they're not reliable. And as far as I know, they, you know what, maybe they have never been admitted into court. It's not reliable science. Okay. All right. Good to know. But I'm not a hundred percent sure about when that ruling occurred, but I can tell you that they're not admissible. Okay. You do have a chapter on prosecutors. Can you explain how the prosecution only needing to prove a defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt makes it possible to convict someone when there is no actual crime? So, you know, this is a fascinating thing, right? We have built into our criminal legal system this idea that prosecutors bear the burden of proving a defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But we have to pause with that, right? Because beyond a reasonable doubt is not beyond all doubt. It's not to 100% certainty, it's to beyond a reasonable doubt. And that makes sense, right? We couldn't make people prove things to 100% certainty. The problem isn't so much that the standard of proof allows for error. What the point I was trying to make in the book is that that standard of proof allows for error. And then we have an appellate system that is unwilling to recognize the possibility of error. So we make it really, really hard for innocent people who've been wrongly convicted to then establish their innocence after conviction. We have a system that prioritizes certainty and finality over justice. And so, so many times you've got someone who's been wrongly convicted based on the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And then we've got appellate courts who just slam the door shut when innocent people try to say like, hey, there was a mistake made, I'm innocent. We don't have a great appellate process to detect that. In misdemeanor cases, which especially which you had mentioned before, why do so many people who are innocent because no crime was committed plead guilty? Right. So here's the thing about misdemeanor cases. They make up the bread and butter of our criminal justice system and they don't get tremendous scrutiny. And so what happens a lot of time is that an innocent person will be brought in on a misdemeanor charge. And I'll give you a great example. When I was a public defender in the Bronx, um, there was a program uh, that allowed the police to go into a variety of public housing and arrest anybody who they believed was trespassing. And so, and, and so they went into housing units where there were primarily poor people, primarily people of color. And if someone was in that lobby without an ID, visiting their aunt or their grandmother, which is not trespassing, right? Trespassing is when you're illegally on the premises. So you're visiting someone who lives there, or maybe you came out of your apartment to go get your mail and you didn't have your ID on you. People were being routinely arrested and they would get hauled into um, the precinct, they would be fingerprinted, they would be handcuffed and photographed, and they would be processed through the system. Sometimes they literally have to spend the evening and all night in jail waiting to be brought before a judge. And they would come you know, before the judge for their first moment. And I would say to my clients, I'd say, listen, you live there, you were visiting your grandma. If you will just come back to court, we'll fight this case. There's no, let's, let's get rid of this. And they would almost always plead guilty because they didn't want to come back to court. Coming back to court is a degrading, humiliating process. You have to wait in an incredibly long line. You have to go through security checks. And people didn't have the means to miss another day of work to, um, you know, they didn't have childcare. Maybe they were, had other community or family responsibilities and they just wanted to close the case. And so they would plead guilty. And that happens far too frequently. I also talk about in the book, there was this crazy thing that happened down in Texas where the police were routinely stopping brown people primarily and were conducting field tests. And field tests are these little, you know, $7 kits that you can do on the side of the road. And they would take substances that they believed were drugs and they would test them using these field tests for the presence of drugs. And if there was a positive test, they would arrest folks and they would be brought into court for drug charges. And the prosecutors in, in Harris County would say to these defendants or the defense lawyers, your client has one opportunity and one opportunity only to take this plea. Otherwise it's going to explode and go away and they can face whatever time they're going to face. And people would plead guilty all the time. 
But in Harris County, something very strange happened. In most places, once someone pleads guilty, the case is closed. But in Harris County, they nonetheless sent out those field tests to the lab. And then the lab came back showing that the field tests had been wrong. These field tests are notoriously unreliable. And so hundreds, literally hundreds of people had pled guilty to drug crimes based on faulty field tests when no drugs had been present at all. And they did it because the consequences of not pleading guilty and risking much more serious charges and much more serious, much more serious time was just too great. You know, we see this happen a lot where a plea becomes the most rational option for an innocent defendant. And so something's gone terribly wrong in our legal system, and yet that happens all the time. Yeah, that, I think that was probably the one thing that was the most shocking to me about the book and, and about pleas in particular. But one thing I did not understand really is if somebody does plead guilty and then it comes back that there was no crime, so there was nothing to plead guilty about, those people still have a criminal record. Could, is, can you explain that? So you have to have the conviction vacated. And so in Harris County, the, where they actually, the prosecutors there did an extraordinary thing. They tried to track down all of those people whose cases um, were based on faulty field tests. And when they could find them, they actually vacated those cases. They asked the judge in conjunction with the defense lawyer to vacate and dismiss those cases. But a lot of those people couldn't be found. And so their convictions still stand. And that was unusual in, in those trespass cases that I started out by telling you, nobody went back and tried to find them. There's thousands, and I mean thousands of people walking around with trespass convictions on their records when no trespassing had occurred. And of course, the problem with that is now there's a criminal justice fingerprint, right? They have been convicted of a crime, they're in the system. You know, it takes quite a bit to undo a plea conviction, and you have to have a prosecutor and the resources and a judge and the defense lawyer. Everyone has to be willing to participate in that process. And far too often, there's just no, there's no interest and there's no movement to do so. Yeah, that I can't, I can't really wrap my head around that. <laughs> nor um, should you, nor should no. anyone. We should be incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable, if not outraged by the truth of our system yeah. Yeah. that allows innocent people to plead guilty and walk around with convictions that are made because, you know, they were poor and they didn't have the resources to fight their cases. Yeah. You also focus on police officers. You know, you say the system that's in place for the police often encourages them to make arrests, to fulfill quotas. And I, I noticed, you know, as I was reading this book, that there, the, in New Jersey, there's a proposal um, that was approved by the, the state Senate Law and Public Safety Committee that would bar from consideration the number of arrests made or citations issued when evaluating an officer's overall performance. Do you think that this will help reduce no crime convictions? Well, so one of the one of the things that I write about in the book is the how how quotas and a lot of departments say we don't have quotas, we have targets, or we don't believe in quotas because obviously when you have a quota, you're incentivizing people to go out and arrest people regardless yeah. of whether a crime occurred or not. Um, and so I do think it's a step in the right direction to sort of call out and say you should not be using quotas or any kind of numerical metric to evaluate an officer's performance because a police officer could be doing a great job by not arresting so many people. And so I do think that's an interesting thought process. Um, and we see in many jurisdictions around the country, many, many, many major cities from New York to Philadelphia to Los Angeles to Baltimore, uh, where police experience tremendous pressure to meet target numbers. And that again is often experienced in the poorest of communities, in communities of color. Um, and so moving away from a quota system absolutely could help reduce the number of people convict, um, arrested for crimes that never occurred. Okay. You've talked about this a bit, like you've really touched on, you know, the, the poor communities that are being targeted. Um, many of those people targeted are black and brown. So what role does cognitive and confirmation bias play in no crime convictions, if you could expand on that? 
Yeah, so I'll t I'd like to, if, if, you, if I can, tell the story um, that I start the book with. There's a, a man named Rodriguez Crawford. Um, he, at the time, um, he was a young man. He, by all, he lived in a poor, largely African-American community in Shreveport, Louisiana, and he had a young son who everyone said he just adored. And then one morning, the unthinkable happened. When he woke up, his son was lying in bed next to him, dead. And you know, they one of the family members called 911, but from the moment that call was placed, things just happened in a tremendously upsetting fashion. Um, the dispatch called 911, you hear on the tape them making fun of the family, um, making racist remarks, making disparaging remarks. When the paramedic arrived, they didn't call their home a home, they referred to it as a crime scene. They whisked the baby into the ambulance and locked the door to the family and called the police waited for the police to come before they told the family that the baby in fact was dead and not able to be revived. And the paramedic, uh, again, who had arrived calling it a crime scene, claimed to see evidence of abuse that was never in fact supported by any of the medical examiner's reports. The police came and whisked um, Rodriguez Crawford off to the precinct um, where he was interrogated as a suspect, not a grieving father. And the medical examiner, even before the lab results came back, declared it a homicide. And when the lab results came back showing the child in fact had pneumonia and sepsis in his lungs, the medical examiner doubled down on the idea that it was a homicide and declared that the pneumonia and sepsis was incidental to the baby's death. And Rodriguez Crawford had the misfortune of being prosecuted by a gung-ho DA who loved the death penalty. He, um, in, in seeking the death penalty against Rodriguez Crawford, he excluded every single black juror from the jury pool, uh, uh, an error that was later found to be egregious by the Louisiana Supreme Court. And Rodriguez Crawford was um, sentenced to die. He eventually was exonerated from death row, but he spent seven years in Angola, which is a notorious notorious prison in Louisiana. And what happened here? We, we see the effect of cognitive bias at every step of the way. So you have a dispatch who's making racist remarks, which framed the scene for the paramedic who arrived assuming a crime had been committed and claimed to see evidence of abuse because she was looking for them, passed that information along to the police and to the paramedics, I mean, and to the medical examiner, and the case went from there. And so that's an example of cognitive biases, people believing or expecting to see one thing and then just minimizing evidence that doesn't support that theory and overvaluing evidence that could support that theory. And in case after case in the book, I talk about sort of how those biases and tunnel vision come to affect outcomes. Because remember, in a no crime wrongful conviction, no crime ever occurred. So by definition, every single piece of evidence used against a defendant is somehow flawed or distorted or wrong. I'm focusing on public defenders now. So although the, the United States Constitution mandates representation for everybody, what are the flaws in the public defender system? Yeah, so that's a really complex question. But, you know, the biggest flaws, and there are many, is that, you know, we do not value the function of defense lawyers enough. And so too many public defenders have caseloads that are jaw dropping. You know, I talk about in the book, people who literally meet and plead their clients out in the span of seven minutes. Like that's unacceptable. That's not representation at all. So you've got overworked, overburdened defense lawyers, but you also have an imbalance where prosecutors have far greater access to resources, to experts, to investigators, and defense lawyers don't. And judges are often reluctant to provide them with access to those things. So if you're a poor defendant who needs to hire an expert, you might just be out of luck. And therefore representation winds up being in name only. That's a huge problem even for the most dedicated and committed criminal defense lawyers. And so public defenders and, and lawyers in general are often at a disadvantage in the system. Plus, if you remember from the start of our interview, you asked me, what are the contributing factors? Well, one of them is official misconduct. So if the police or prosecutor is hiding evidence or putting on a witness that they know is not telling the truth, defense lawyers don't really have access to that information. They can't they can't know about evidence that's been hidden, right? Mm -hmm. Even when the prosecutor has an obligation to turn it over to them. And so there is an informational imbalance that 
can harm innocent defendants even when they have the most dedicated lawyers on their side. And how are some of the ways judges contribute to no crime convictions? This is very interesting to me. Judges typically get a pass. Nobody ever talks about judges. And yet there is not one single innocent defendant who's been wrongly convicted who didn't have a judge present throughout their case. And so that got me just sort of wondering about judges. And judges can contribute to wrongful convictions in lots of different ways. But some of the ways is they themselves can be biased. And I talk about lots of examples of bigoted judges or drunk judges or judges that are otherwise incompetent to be sitting on the bench who in fact are sitting on the bench. But they also don't necessarily do what they need to do to make sure that justice is being done. So they accept pleas without ensuring there's an actual factual basis for it. Uh, Again, we're talking about an informational imbalance here. And often the only people who know whether they can prove their case is the prosecutor. And so defense lawyers are helping their clients plead guilty, but they're going blind. And judges don't do anything about that. Judges don't call out prosecutors for misconduct. They don't call out sleeping defense lawyers. Um, They kind of just let the system take its course. They, They let in experts to testify about junk science that they should never allow into a court of law whether that's bite mark evidence, there are people roaming around the country today who are call themselves forensic odontologists who say that they can match people's teeth, actual teeth to bite marks on people's bodies. And yet we know they can't do that. That's actually fake. That's something from TV, but it's not real. And judges allow it into court and they shouldn't. What kind of reforms do you suggest to reduce the number of no crime convictions? I I know that you actually in the book talk about a lot, but if you just want to highlight maybe some of the the big ones. (laughs) Yeah, so that is a tough question to sort of summarize, but it depends on what area you really want to look at. When we talk about, for instance, public defenders, one way to improve the quality of legal representation is to prioritize it, to say that it matters, and to start funding public defenders better and to ensure an even a more even playing field by allowing access to experts. That would be a really good way to start. Judges need to do a much better job about vetting um, the kinds of forensic science they're going to allow into their courtroom. One area of reform that might resonate for the people listening is the issue of immunity. So, you know, this year, I think people have become aware, maybe for the first time, that police have qualified immunity for their misconduct meaning it's very, very hard to hold them accountable when they engage in wrongdoing. And in my book, I talk quite a bit about police misconduct where they literally just create accusations of crimes for things that didn't occur. They plant evidence or they engage in other kinds of egregious misconduct. It's very hard to hold them accountable. But what people probably don't know is that prosecutors have absolute immunity. You cannot hold a prosecutor responsible for their misconduct when it's committed in an official capacity. And I think that needs to change because prosecutors literally have no incentive to play by the rules. And so they, there's no way to get at them when they engage in misconduct in their course of being a prosecutor. <laughs> and people are just shocked by that. And yet it's true. And then on the much, much more global you know, reform recommendation, if we want to stop bringing in poor people and people of color for crimes that never happened, um, like these trespass cases or, you know, like a lot of these low-level drug offenses, we need to change the way that we think about policing and, and prosecuting crime in the first place. That's something that I think we can and should do now. If you want to just learn more about injustice in the criminal justice system, you know, I would highly recommend Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. A lot of people have watched the movie, but it's really a a wonderful book to read and very accessible. If you want something, also The New Jim Crow is a great book to take a look at. In terms of organizations, New Jersey has the oldest organization devoted to trying to uncover um, wrongful convictions, and that's called Centurion Ministries, which is located down in Princeton. Um, They are not officially uh, affiliated with the Innocence Project, but they were the first folks who even started looking at this. So um, Centurion Ministries is a local organization. The Innocence Project is obviously a national organization doing great advocacy work on behalf of individuals and also to reform the system. And so those are just a couple of entities that do really good work. One other organization, the Bronx Defenders, where I used to work, 
is led by Justine Olderman, another Montclair person. You know, that's a tremendous organization that does great work in the Bronx, um, not just criminal, they do civil and families and Im- immigration work. So that's an organization you could also take a look at. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jessica. This has just been an incredible interview uh, with amazing information. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. If you're interested in purchasing Smoke But No Fire, you can find that at Wachung Booksellers. All proceeds from the book sales are being donated by Jessica to projects that support exonerees upon their release from prison. Um, You can also borrow Smoke But No Fire from the Montclair Public Library. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Check Us Out, the podcast from the Montclair Public Library. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions. You can contact us from our website, montclairlibrary.org. You can also download our new app from the App Store or Google Play. Just search for Montclair Public Library. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and appreciate your support of the library. For more information about our programs, materials, and services, visit our website, montclairlibrary.org. Thanks for joining us and stay safe.